Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to another edition of Let's Talk TV Live. I'm your host, Barbara Barnett. I'm the executive editor of Blog Critics Magazine at blogcritics.org, where I also serve as senior TV and film editor. I am also proprietress, I guess that's the right word, of the TV blog, Let's Let's Talk TV. Um, I'm going to be joined tonight by Jerry Weaver, who stepped out of the studio for a bit, and she'll be back in just a minute. We're going to talk about Downton Abbey tonight. Usually, um, after a Once Upon a Time episode, we spend Monday night talking about Once Upon a Time. Um, we're going to defer that uh, till tomorrow. What an outstanding episode. The Miller's Daughter um, was an amazing episode last night. Um, but we're going to talk about it tomorrow night because I'm going to have in the studio uh, as a guest Jane Espenson, the wonderful uh, sci-fi goddess of TV writing um, and who wrote The Miller's Daughter. And she's written quite a few of the Once Upon a Time episodes. And she's been on the show a few times um, since we started back at the end of October so she's going to be on tomorrow night. So please tune in for lots of Once Upon a Time talk. Um, and I'm going to bring Jerry in. She's back. Hang on one second. Hello, Jerry. Uh, oh, she's. we're waiting, we're waiting, waiting. So in the meantime, oh, Jerry, there you are. I'm here. Hey, welcome back. Hello, Barbara. To the studio. Welcome back to the studio. Thank you. Um, I was just saying that tomorrow night I'm going to have Jane Espenson on the show to talk Once Upon a Time, but tonight we're going to talk Downton Abbey. Um, I got some very exciting news, though, actually. I got a very cool invitation. As you may know, Game of Thrones is coming back for its third season at the end of this month. Do you watch Game of Thrones? I love Game of Thrones. Okay, so sit down because you're going to be drooling in a minute. Okay. HBO has invited me to a screening and reception next Thursday night in Chicago, um, a media event in Chicago. They don't ever have media events in Chicago, but they're having one right here, and it is Medieval Dress Encouraged. What are you going as? I have a really cool medieval dress. Um, It's actually from one of my favorite uh, kind of I guess, fancy dress sort of costuming thing. It's called Holy Clothing. Holyclothing.com. They are not sponsors, but see, you guys should be sponsors now. Um, They have some really cool stuff. And one of the things they have is they have something called an Arwen dress. Oh. And and it is quite the uh, medieval dress. It's got those great big long sleeves, and it's very appropriate. Either if you were going to a Game of Thrones party or – Probably a once upon a time party it would work. It wouldn't necessarily work for Downton Abbey, although I have a really cool Downton Abbey type costume as well. But so next Thursday night I'm going to be going to this Game of Thrones thing. And uh so that should be lots of fun and I will report on it. I cannot wait. Are the rent members going? I you know, I don't know. Um it's a media event. So 
I would I I don't know. I'm going to find out. I'm going to uh email my contact and and find out and maybe I'll just wait and see. But yeah, wouldn't that be nice if they brought some of the cast? I mean, it would be a big deal to bring those guys from Great Britain, you know, from the UK to come to Chicago. That would be cool. Who should who should we who would we want to have there? Well, there's so many, but you know, John Snow would be okay. Yeah. Okay, um, we can have him. Amelia Clark. I think yeah. Really love I'm mixing oh. matching actors here. <laughs> well, let's see. You know, Peter Dinklage might not be a far cry because he is North American. I think he, is he Canadian. I don't he, think so, but I, I'm not. I'm not really sure. Can't remember. Um, but but he's from North America, so <laughs> that much I do know. Um, he's like the one of the only uh, non-UK actors in the show. So he would probably be the most easiest person to get here. Um, Ian Glenn, there's the Downton Abbey connection. Yes. <laughs> took me a little while. I was looking and thinking, why is he so familiar? Oh, now I've got it. Oh, yes, he is Sarah Jorah on, uh, on, on Game of Thrones. And, and yes. Um, so actually, I was hoping to interview him, and, and it never worked out. So, yes, so um, so I'm going to that, which is very exciting. And tomorrow is actually a really big day for me. Tomorrow, um, Amazon.com is announcing the next round, the next cut of their Breakthrough Novel of the Year awards. And I had made the first cut. And tomorrow, and so it was like 10,000 entries, and the top 2,000 are in this first, this next part of the competition. And now it'll be down to 500 the top 500 and their novels. So um, tomorrow I'll find out if my excerpt from my novel actually made the cut. So I'm sort of a little bit on pins and needles tonight. And hopefully they'll announce them early tomorrow morning. So I want me to sit on pins and needles. So that's very exciting for me. Um, and I and I just I'm in the process of doing a kind of a cool email interview with, um, and I'm kind of going all over the map here. Um, with do you, do you know who the monkeys are? I do. I'm doing an interview with Michael Nesmith. What is he up to? He is going on tour. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's going on tour, I think, starting next week, if I'm not mistaken. Quite a bit of his tour is sold out, too. So um, so I'm just waiting for the rest of his responses to my email interview, and that's going to go up on Blog Critics when I get that. But that's kind of fun. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to have like watched the show when it was on. I was pretty lo- pretty young, but we used to like have a monkeys club and everything. Just hopeless. I wasn't in a monkeys club, but I did love the monkeys. I <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. Who was your favorite monkey? Um, probably Davy Jones. Thank you. Yeah, I kind of liked Peter, but okay. Anyway, so I want to encourage everyone now that I've gotten completely off topic. Um. To um, please, uh, if you want to, you know, go into the archives and listen to our back episodes. Um, we've got everything from, you know, interviews with Jane Espenson, interview with Jesse Schram, who's on Once Upon a Time and Falling Skies and Last Resort, and I've had on Joe Malazzi, uh, who is an executive producer on Stargate Universe and all the other Stargates as well. Uh, there are tons and tons of really cool. Uh, interviews that I've done and and panels that you and me and you and me and Jerome Wetzel TV and just all kinds of fun stuff that we've done. So I want to encourage everyone to go have a listen in the archive. 
Um, and also remind everyone that we are sponsored by Wireless One Marketing. So please hang out uh, there if you're interested in an awesome app and definitely download the app for Let's Talk TV while you're at it. So let's talk about Downton Abbey. I am very late to the show. Um, I watched the first series. Let's let's talk about it the way they talk about it. I watched the first series probably at the end of when it first came, when it first was on, and I watched it like kind of all in one sitting. I think on Netflix, and I think I watched it in like one weekend. And I thought, okay, this is pretty good. I'm kind of a, an upstairs downstairs snob. Um, and I really, I loved, I, re, I grew up with Upstairs, Downstairs. Um, I, t- I loved it. I actually liked the reincarnation of Upstairs, Downstairs that came on a couple years ago. It was only on for one season. I really, really liked it. So Downton Abbey was, okay, so I'm going to give it a try. And I watched the first series. And then I sort of, I knew that it was coming back on. And, and I was really busy with other things. And I never got around to it. So people were starting to really harass me. They said, you know, you really need to watch Downton Abbey. You really, really need to watch Downton Abbey. So I said, okay, fine. I'm going to sit down and I'll watch Downton Abbey. And I I kind of watched the rest of it. I, I started back with the beginning of season one because it had been a couple of, of years. And so I watched it all the way through. I think it took me about a week and I got all the way through it. So um, I'm sort of up on it. It's all very fresh in my mind. And I really like it. I really like it. I'm um I'm not I mean I think that Julian Fellows writing isn't always consistent and it isn't always fantastic, but it's fun and the acting and the performances really make it for me. I mean as melodramatic as it gets and as fluff as it gets, I think I really the performances really do it for me. So, so tell me how you came into um, watching Downton. I didn't watch it the, the first series when it was first broadcast, but believe it or not, I was on a plane, and that was one of the things that I could watch in, on the, the back of the seat. And I thought, well, you know, I've been hearing about it. I'll just try it. And I was able to actually do the first two, and I, I actually was immediately caught. I thought, I really, I, I love upstairs, downstairs as well, and I just really love the performances right away. And I think I, I thought that what Julian Fellows did, I would agree with you that sometimes the writing goes a little bit up, goes a little bit down. The performances are always solid. But I really like the way he's kind of caught that point in time when that, that way of life was falling away because mm-hmm. of the changes of the modern world and how much yeah. the Persian War really did that. And that I feel he's really capturing quite well. Yeah, yeah. I think atmospherically and also um, not not just atmospherically, but really – that sort of break between old and new. It's almost like uh, one of my favorite musicals is Fiddler on the Roof. And I almost think that Robert um, Grantham is sort of like Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, where, that's a great, great analogy. Yeah. yeah, isn't it? I, I, you know, and I had thought about it, and Jimmy uh, Daly, uh, Jerome Wetzel TV, mentioned it last week on the air. I was like, yeah, I was just thinking about that while I was watching it. But it's true. He's he's of one generation and he's watching it all kind of fall apart in front of him. And and it's, it makes him kind of a tragic character. Um, but well, yeah. He's, he's, he's got such a position of power in the yeah. old power structure. And they made such a point of the fact that 
he handled it very well and that he was a very nice man and he really thought about what his duties and responsibilities were. Mm-hmm. But how much it really threw him when he realized he's at the tipping point of a world where he doesn't. And right. what does that do right. him? Right. And I think the other thing is that they captured the purpose of those families and those estates was not just to have all this power, but to be like a factory. T- it's like a factory town, a major employer. And Robert's so conscious of that. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely is. And I think that's really, um, you know, it is part of the dynasty. You know, he is. And I just I just love that. Um, I've loved Julian. Julian Fellows is actually particularly good at capturing this time period. I adored Gosford Park. I do too. It's one of my favorite movies of the of of the two thousands. And um, I think it was two thousand. Maybe it was nineteen ninety nine when it came out. But I thought it did an exceptional job. Um, and I, I watched it. I think I I think I watched it. I tend to watch things, see movies um, where I I really like a particular actor, and it was a kind of in a phase where I was discovering Jeremy Northam, and he plays um, uh, Ivor Novello in it and plays piano and sings, and I realized what a fantastic musician he was as well as being a brilliant actor. But I really thought it captured this sort of tension, uh, just like Downton does between old school and new school and also the distinctions, especially a little bit in Cora, but particularly when Cora's mom comes into the picture uh, between uh, the U.S. and, and the U.K., that's the part of it that actually didn't work quite as well for me, although I do know what he was doing with it, and I think he's got it exactly on the nose what he was doing with it. I just thought that Cora came, or not Cora, but Cora's mom comes, she was just a little bit more of a caricature rather yeah. than a caricature, whereas Maggie Smith, well, she's obviously the mouthpiece of that of the English era, but she's a definite character. And I thought it was a bit of a shame that it was a little bit more that um, Shirley MacLaine had to be a mouthpiece instead. Yeah, and I'm wondering how much of that is uh, Julian Fellows' own bias. You know? Maybe lack of familiarity, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, it could be that. It could be a little bit of snobbery. <laughs> um, you know, and and you got almost you know, and it's funny because in Gosford Park, you got almost the same kinds of scenes in the kitchen when the Americans were there. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind, I thought, kind of interesting. Um. Bob Balaban's character in that movie is an American and he's a vegetarian and particular about what he's eating. And there's some great scenes as far as that goes, but yeah, I I just, but I, I, I'm really liking that capture of atmosphere um, that Julian fellows has really done. But to me, it's just the acting. So I want to go through and um, I want to talk through uh, all of the characters. I, I sat down and I actually wrote them out because I didn't want to miss anyone. <laughs> but before I talk, yeah, it's like there are so many characters and so many um, relationships, uh, and I want to talk through them. But one of the things that kind of stuck stuck to me or stuck out to me is I, I actually – I'm writing a, a new novel, not, not the one that's in the Amazon competition, but um, I'm taking a, a, co- a course in novel writing, and uh, we have to write a novel for the course. Um, which is like, I suppose, like taking a PhD in literature where you have to write a novel for the course, for the PhD. But um, you have to write a novel. And I'm writing a novel that actually, to a certain extent, explores the tension 
between medical practitioners of different kinds. So there is the gentleman physician who's, and my novel takes place at the beginning in 1837. And you have gentlemen physicians who have studied at Cambridge or Oxford or at, at, at University of Edinburgh, which was like the really big place um, where science was much better. But those who studied at Cambridge and Oxford and, and got through to be physicians did so not on the basis of any skill or any practical anything, but on the basis of legacy and family and title and never got their hands dirty, never got their you know fingers in the, in the body as it were, but um, all from lecture and observation. And then there were surgeons and apothecaries back in the, the, that day, those days. Uh, again, this is substantially before Downton takes place, but who apprenticed and really kind of got their their hands dirty, and no. No self-respecting physician would dare get his hands dirty with a patient. So um, all that sort of is a way I was doing research on this. And then you have a situation with Sybil's death, you know, the, when Sybil was having the baby. With eclampsia. With eclampsia. And you have Dr. Clarkson, and then you have Sir Philip something or other. And... You, you see Robert having a strong preference for the gentleman physician, you know, with the title and, you know, really dismissing country Dr. Clarkson, um, who is not, you know, he is not a quote-unquote um, gentleman physician with a title. So I thought that was really interesting. That was like a li- almost like a subtle thread but something I think I found as as a someone who's interested in, in medical history, um, just really interesting. And it was again I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think Isabel really plays into that too, about how she yep. has such a strong bent for science mm-hmm. and that she wants to get her hands really hands on science. And then Sybil kind of came through that as well, as opposed to I think with the the um Lord Philip, but I can't remember his last name either where it was, this is your position, so of course you would know, as right. opposed to feeling for, here's what we, here's the latest improvements in science, I've been reading up on it. Right, exactly, and and that was actually less important. Now, this was at a time in the early 20th century where this was actually changing much. I mean, a lot of it began changing considerably in the late 19th century, and into the early 20th, and this is really such a time of, of huge transition. Around 1850, 1860 was another transition time, but it was a, even a bigger transition time as, as uh, infectious diseases were becoming known and, and medicines were being known and, and um, surgical techniques and testing techniques and, and all of that, and these, these gentlemen physicians were almost becoming a, a dinosaur um, at this time, sort of like Robert. He yeah. and you know Lord Philip and Robert sort of belong in the same you know box, I guess. But I just found that really interesting in, in light of what I was writing. I was like, yes, validation. <laughs> this is a good thing to explore, even though it's as I said, my my novel is set in 1837 and not in 1912 or 1919 or 1920 or what, whenever um, that takes place. But yeah, and and then you have too, you you have Isabel 
who probably, if she were around now, would be a doctor. That's right. She's very, very knowledgeable, headstrong woman. And and you're so so, um, confident and so intellectual and able to learn, and yet you're having such difficulty finding a place for herself in the world. Yeah, I totally ship her and Dr. Clarkson. <laughs> I did not know why they didn't have that go forward. Oh, I was like, and, and like sort of, life. yeah, you know, and I can't decide, maybe you can tell me what you think. I can't decide if she actually realized that Clarkson was going to propose to her or whether she was that oblivious. I thought she knew, and I thought that she really decided that she was going to get ahead of that proposal so that they could still stay friends, and without it getting awkward. That was my impression. I did, I'm not entirely sure why, though. I keep going back and forth, because I almost, her expression almost suggests to me that she didn't know, that she she wasn't, that she, you know, she kind of speaks before she thinks sometimes. And I'm I'm almost thinking it was like a comedy of errors kind of thing where she really wasn't, they really weren't speaking on the same page. I would be open to that if that's where we went. I have to say my impression was that she did know and she was trying to make sure that he got the message before he got the words out. Yeah, but I guess we'll find because out. She didn't have, there wasn't a lot else going along you know, with Isabel. She didn't have a strong storyline this season. No. So I really didn't know why they wouldn't have decided to open that up for her. Maybe they will next season. The courtship, I'm sure, will go on. Yes. Sort of a remains of the day-ish sort of courtship. Yeah, that was like step one. Yep, step one. Yeah, courtships, you know, they they take a while. So who is your favorite? Who's your favorite character on uh, on the show? I really don't have just one. Okay, who um, are you? I, I love Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the housekeeper, which is huge. Oh, isn't she great? Um, Talk oh, I about just, medical it, problems. She had her medical scare this year. She certainly did, and they handled that very well. Beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah, I love Mrs. Patmore. Yeah. Uh, and Daisy. <laughs> I love Thomas. I mean, I don't love him in that I would uh, want him necessarily to be my best friend, but I do think the character is really interesting. He sort of creeps me out. <laughs> but again, I just think such a well-done character. He's always interesting. Yeah, I know when he's on screen. Especially in that last episode, the Christmas episode in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Not, no, I mean, he wasn't in Scotland. The, the Christmas episode um, where they were still uh, at Downton. He was still at Downton. Yeah, he didn't go with them. Yes, yes, yeah. I, I thought his character came along quite a bit. Um, and, and I think O'Brien came a, along a bit in that final episode, too. And too yeah. bad she's leaving. I know that. I think that it's too bad they've had so many cast members leave all at once. And I know it's not in anybody's control, but it, they had to do an awful lot. I mean, really, season four will be a reboot. And in some ways, I yeah. wonder, like, should they even have bothered with season four? Why not have ended with season three? Because almost everybody's arc actually wrapped up. Yeah, yeah, but it but it opens things up as well. I think. I mean, you have now Mary's story. It opens up now. She's a widow. Um, you know, and and her, uh, whatever happens with her, and what her position is. Um, you know, she's going to be the the dowager. 
because her son, her and Matthew's son, is the heir now, I think. Yeah, she'll be like almost like a regent. (laughs) Yeah, 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 she will. And that's really good because she's smart. And uh, and she's savvy and she's outspoken and I really I really like that. Yeah. Um, and um, and for um, you know we still don't know. I mean Tom is sort of where he is. He's kind of still he's less isolated and now but but now with Matthew gone, Matthew was sort of his you know um, oh I don't want to say protector but sort of his you know his ally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, his ally. I, I still felt like there was an arc with Branson where he had to overcome, you know, so much prejudice, his own and, of course, other people's towards him. And then in the, the episode just before the Christmas episode, which had such a lovely ending when they were all at the fair, and you really saw that Robert, as far as he's concerned, he was there as his two sons-in-law. So Branson had finally become part of the family. It was you know, yeah. kind of a nice arc ending there. I know that they can go on from it. But yeah. there's an awful lot of things that really were beautifully brought to a close. Yeah, yeah. One thing I was really, really glad to see was that maid. Um, I can't remember her name. That was uh, in the last couple of episodes, or maybe just the last Ooh. episode. Kind of trying to get her claws into Branson. Yeah. Did not like and that. He was so good about being able to point out to him that he had to figure out who he was. Oh, and that was such a beautiful scene where he just breaks down in her arms. Mm-hmm. It was just, just a lovely lovely, lovely moment. Um, There's a couple of those this season that I really loved. You know, Sybil's death, Mm. very, very sad, but beautifully done. Yeah. Very, very sad. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, I really, of course, Violet has the best lines. Maggie Smith just is a master Mm. at delivering those dry lines. Love it. Yeah. Um, you can never predict really where she's going to stand on something because she seems like this old establishment yeah. driver. In fact, she's extremely pragmatic and she really does go with what's best for family. Yeah, she does. She does. She, you know, she was Edith's advocate in going to write. <clears throat> excuse me, going to write for the newspaper eventually. Um, she, she was Branson's advocate, which was odd. Yeah, she was Branson ad, Branson's advocate. And she sent sent them the money to come uh, up for Matthew and Mary's wedding, if I recall. She did. Uh, yeah. She did. Yeah. And and I, you know, but if it's going to be in the family, then we just find out how to do that. That's right. I really love her character. She kind of pops in and out. She's not a, you know, she doesn't have a huge, 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 huge role, but it's such a significant part of the tapestry of it. Just if, really, if it lost Maggie, it would be terrible for the show. Oh gosh, don't even say it. They can't. <laughs> they can't. Um, but yeah, Sybil's loss will be, you know, the loss of her. Of course, she's lost earlier in the season. But again, that opens up again for Tom a new chapter. You know, he's without Sybil and he's without Matthew to to be his ally. And and is he going to stay at Downton? I think he'll end up being the estate manager in that nice little role that they found for him mm-hmm. because they're going to need him more than ever without Matthew. Yeah, they definitely will. And he's smart. You know, he's very smart. I would have liked to have seen them explore just a little bit more his his uh, struggle, you know, with overcoming his own. You know, it almost seemed, and I know that they jump years 
all the time and jump months and whatever, but we don't really get to see that struggle. You know, one day he is like really opposed to um, all of this stuff. And then all of a sudden he kind of accepts his role. And And what we didn't get to see a whole lot of how he had to work it through in his own mind. Other than the fact that eventually he did realize that his daughter was going to grow up in this tradition, in this country with these people, and he better figure out how to help right. that for her. Right. And I love the episode, I love the episode with his uh with his brother. You know, that was a good episode too. Mm-hmm. That was a good moment too because it really did show that that he had sort of resigned himself or accepted himself for for who he was now associated with. Yeah, he's he actually is kind of in between worlds right now, I would say. Mm-hmm. Because he really probably can't quite go back to where he came from with all of the new experiences he's had. Well, not yeah, only that, he'll be arrested if he steps foot on Ireland. <laughs> but I thought with his brother, there was a little bit, you know, they were just showing that they're no longer really completely on the same page. Right, right, right. I thought that was really, really well done. Um, let's see, who else? Oh, Cora. I love the, the tension between Robert and Cora. Uh, it was what, yeah. In the beginning, they just seemed to be so perfect, and in a way, you just thought, "Oh dear, they can't keep on being this." But they certainly didn't. And all of their, um, I thought, their tensions are so believable. Right, and and you know, especially in the light of you know of Sybil's death and and Roberts insisting, you know, again back to the doctors, you know, back to the old school and the tradition of of trusting the the titled physician. Um, and then Cora, you know, just saying, this isn't right, this isn't right, and blaming him. And, um, you know, and then Violet appealing to Clarkson to, um, you know, to, to, to lie, actually, um, for, for the sake of the family. Yeah. And I, I really that. love the fact that in the beginning of the season, when Robert leaves all of Cora's money, and I'm sure he was quite worried about how she would handle that. And she handles that so well. And just yeah. says, well, and then we'll move on. You know, that this doesn't, this is not going to throw me. We will go to this place. And, you know, she actually handles it better than he does. But then the thing that actually is difficult for her is, of course, leaving her daughter. And I thought that was just such a nice statement on Cora and who she is and why the marriage is worth fighting for. Right. Right, right, right. And just being adamant. And her relationship with Violet is also very interesting. Yeah, uh, but love- she comes from, her mother is, you know, a, a dragon in her own right. So she seems <laughs> to have a lot of experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, her mother's quite the dragon. Um, and Violet is a different kind of dragon. Um, but I loved the uh, the statement um, Cora says, and I think it's in season three, where she says, are we to be friends now? And Violet says, well, allies, which is much more effective. <laughs> or something like that. I, I, I butchered the line, but. Yeah. But um, I remember you said that. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was obviously a little bit of a turning point between the two of them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, Violet is going to be very inclined to take her part against Robert in this sort of modern world versus, and of course, Cora comes from a more modern, more populist environment being an American. Um, 
And so a lot of the tradition that Robert clings to as it as he loses his hold on it isn't as difficult for Cora to 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 forget about or to, to you know to lose. And that it's not difficult as difficult for um violence. I mean, or she's older than Robert is. Right. But anyways, I think it might also be exploring the difference between women's world and men's world, and that women do tend to be very pragmatic about many things. Yes, they do. They do. Um, and it'll be interesting. I'm sure they're going to, I, from what I read, they're going to pick up about six months after the end of season three. Okay. Um, in season four. That's what I heard. Um, and right in the midst of, of I would imagine, suffrage, you know, the whole suffrage thing, which has been so going Edith on. Should, yeah, I think Edith and Lily should really come to the forefront. Yeah. Oh, and what about Lily? She's going to be a Downton. Yeah, I think they brought her on as a major character. That was my impression about yeah. why they now got the ward. Yes, yes. And she's yes. just the right age. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. Um, and that should be pretty interesting because she's kind of a, a wild card or a wild child. Um, you know, she's an independent spirit in a different way than Sybil was. And um, it should be pretty interesting to see where she goes. And what's Edith going to, what's what's going to be with Edith, I wonder? I hope we're going to find out that, you know, she's going to have a whole relationship of her own and life of her own in London, which she's going to decide to stand up for. Right, right. And it's funny because, you know, her relationship with this sort of guy with the with the wife in the closet, a little reminiscent of Jane Eyre in Rochester with his mad mm-hmm. wife. In the, I, I immediately flashed on Jane Eyre, which was, you know, which is probably my favorite book of all time. Um, and, you know, with the mad woman wife that he barely knew um, in the, in, you know, up in, up in the attic. And, uh, you know, is, is Edith going to be Jane Eyre, or is she going to be a modern woman? You know, is she going to be a, is she going to be a Victorian, woman. or is she going to be a modern woman? And I think that I, I'm wondering, almost wondering, if that's an intentional parallel that Fellows wrote into it, because it is such. That that whole you know, Jane Eyre and, and the Brontes are such a classic part of Victoriana, and what was possible. And now you have someone we're in a new century, but and, and in the Edwardian period, but not so far from the Victorian period. And you have maybe Edith doing what Jane Eyre would not have done. That would be my thought. It would be, in a way, it's calling it up, but it's also going to be a different story because I think for Edith, she really has very little place in the old order of things. And like she says, she's going to be the spinster aunt who's mm-hmm. good at supporting people and doing things, and it, it's not a very fulfilling position for her at all. So what has she got to lose, really, by being the modern woman? Right, exactly. Um, and I think that, um, that, that, you know, I mean, I think that that's going to be interesting to watch that. And then we have, uh, we're going to go downstairs. Let's go downstairs for a minute. I love um, downstairs. Yeah, yeah, the downstairs. Um, Bates, you know, I, he's such a good man. I almost want him to be more flawed. <laughs> Sorry, which one? Bates. Oh, Bates. That was my least favorite downstairs storyline, to be honest. Yeah. I just 
like I wasn't as caught up in the whole jail and let's get Bates cleared as I could have been, and it just seemed to go on and on and on, probably because I wasn't as caught up with it. Yeah, no, it did went, it did go on for quite some time. Um, and Anna and Bates are just two are so good. You know, they were. It's like I'm going to draw a Once Upon a Time parallel: Snow White and Prince Charming. Mm-hmm. There's no dark side, you know. Or wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, there, there's yeah, or wasn't right. But but there's never, and I think, and Once Upon a Time, I think that's intentional that they've now, you know, I think that um, Eddie Kittis and Adam Horowitz realized. I mean, Snow White and Prince Charming were supposed to be the main characters of this show. And they're boring to a large degree, or they have been. Now things are spiced up because we bring a little darkness into to their life. But yeah. I think that had they not been created as so cookie-cutter, fairy tale good guys, they might have been you know like the the being able to stay like really super popular characters but there's nowhere for them to go so when you've got characters who are so good um where do you go with them yeah and also i I think that i'm interested in the downton world and it's okay to go up to london as long as i am interested in the way you're taking me to london and you can take me occasionally to scotland but having such a big part set in jail, I just thought, but I'm not interested in this. Yeah, this, no. This is not a setting that I want to be spending my time in. I'm sorry. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I, you know, a lot of people are kind of shipping Hughes and Carson. What do you think? <clears throat> I would love it if they did, but I'm not sure. That would kind of be like remains of the day, I guess. I and know. I just, <laughs> So I'm certainly not against it, but I have a feeling that they might be a little bit more pragmatic and have them simply be friends that age together. Yeah, I think that that's probably. But I'm certainly not against it. If they do decide to actually take it somewhere, I would certainly enjoy that. Well, you know, I mean, when she found out, when he found out that she did not, in fact, have cancer, and he's singing. He was. He was, sing- <laughs> he was singing a but very romantic little ditty. I believe that he cares, though. I think he cares about everybody, but she's certainly his closest friend on the staff. Oh, yeah. And they really show how much they, you know, they really depend on each other. But so. One of the things I really, really like a lot is, and again, this goes to, and, and I'm always, not, I'm not always a fan of Julian Fellow's specific writing of characters and scenes, but atmosphere uh-huh. he nails, and I love the, the little. Um, snobbishness, you know, the little class distinctions almost between the different levels of servants. Oh, yes, very much. And how important those are to them. Well, you're not a first footman, you're just a second footman. And, well, you know, I'm I'm a valet, so I don't have to, you know, I'm not winding the clock because that would be unseemly for a valet to be doing that. And yeah. you know, it's just is there I love I love those little class, intricate little class warfare that goes down goes on downstairs as much as it does upstairs. And I also love the fact that Carson and Hughes have a different take on that. And although Hughes is still very much part of that world and you have to learn how to survive in that world and follow its rules, but she really does not have rose colored glasses at all about the people that they're serving. 
and she likes them and she likes her job, but she doesn't have this sense of, you know, I'm I'm here to serve them because they're so wonderful. Where Carson, you know, really is completely bought into the world. Yes. Yeah, he's drunk for Kool Aid. Yeah. He definitely has. I love their little eyes and she goes, Well, I don't have quite the same thought that you do. <laughs> Really, really, yeah, and he's all for the family and everything is, and, and Hughes is very much more, again, you know, maybe it's a difference between how women and men see it, you know, Carson sees this as a matter of pride. But, you yeah, know, I have to say, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I said, and that he's very much, it's an extension of the family. Oh, very much so. You know, very their, much. their family is his family. Yes, yes. Um, you know, it's, one of the things that actually surprised me quite a bit was the idea that um, Carson was actually willing to uh, leave the household to go with Mary and uh, Sir Jorah. No, I mean, I don't mean Sir Jorah. <laughs> Wrong show. Wrong show. Um, with uh, with um, uh, Richard Carlyle. That's right. How could I forget that name? Um, yeah, and, and, you know, boy, I did not like that character at all. That was in season two, though, right? Was that in season two? That was, that was season two. <laughs> Do they blend together in my head? Um, I did, yeah, I did not like that guy. I, I really loved, I loved the actor. I think Ian Glenn is a fantastic actor, and I love him in Game of Thrones. And I just, his character, Richard Carlyle, was such, no wonder no one liked him. Yeah, but I, was, I think he was. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I think he was deliberately going for that. I mean, I I don't think that they sort of. Oops, we didn't mean for him to be so slimy. I think he oh, was no, no, supposed no. to be. Yeah, no, I I totally believe that they meant for him to be as slimy as he came off. Um, but I was really surprised that Carson was actually willing to go ahead and uh, and and leave the household to, to follow Mary. I think they made quite a big thing about how for him she's almost like a surrogate daughter. Yeah, and that you know he makes no bones about the fact that she is his favorite. You know, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, no, there's no question. Um, I did not like I, Tom. You know, you and I are going to disagree because you really like Thomas. Um, I just think he is his his behavior in previous seasons. Yeah, he's become a bit redempted, redeemed in season three, at the end of season three, but what a conniving, manipulative jerk. <laughs> <laughs> he was. I think the thing that helps me with his character is the fact that because he is the gay character and it's for him he's something that he has to carry as a secret, even though, and we find out in the end that actually it's a pretty open secret and that people aren't judging him as much as he right. thinks they need, but certainly in his life they have. And so he's an outsider who yeah. is not allowed to be in because of the way that he was born. And I think that that's something you're supposed to think has really shaped his personality. And he's now meeting people that are allowing him to express more of perhaps who he would like to be. Okay, I can buy that. I can buy that. So his so his belligerence and his attitude. I think he's feeling um, that he has to do whatever it takes to get ahead. Is because yeah. if he is just himself, that's not good enough. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but but you may have a good point. You may have a good point there. Um, and then of course we have Jimmy and Alfred. 
the footmen. Tall. I never knew that footmen are supposed to be like really tall. I don't think they are. I think that um, which is the tall one, Alfred? Yeah. I think they made a big thing about how tall he was and the fact that they could probably couldn't get livery to fit him. Hmm. But I think they are. I mean, I think they are supposed to be tall. I okay. I I do I do believe that they are supposed to be tall and um yeah uh, but he's exceptionally he's too tall to be a footman he may be just exceptionally tall yeah he is exceptionally tall there's no doubt about that <laughs> probably especially in England at that time I mean I don't think that people were regularly about six four or six five or whatever he is right 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 right. Because I remember in uh, Gosford Park, the footman was played by uh, Richard E. Grant. Have you ever seen him in any movies? Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I, I used to be a big fan of his. I haven't seen anything he's done recently. But, by the way, he did, a, he, did, he did a BBC thing with uh, Elizabeth McGovern. Oh, I remember him from Withnail and I. Oh, Withnail and I. Withnail and I. Me, I love Withnail and I. It is one yes. of my favorite movies. One of my you can't really, yeah, you can call it a comedy, but it's really you can. Tra- you can. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's very funny. Um, and you know what? I I uh, credit with Nail and I for one of my favorite summertime recipes. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I'm terrible. Refresh my mind. Beer chicken. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> It was to the I endless of my children. You take a beer can and you open it and you season the chicken and you plop the chicken, the whole chicken, sitting on top of the beer can. So the beer can is inside the cavity of the chicken. And you put it on the grill and you let it cook. And, 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 all the lime. and I call it with nail chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I make that one too. Do you really? It's great. It's it's a great. It's a, and I got that from watching with Nail and I. But I, I love that. But but he also did a uh, he did a two series uh, two seasons of the Scarlet Pimpernel with Elizabeth McGovern for the BBC. I didn't watch that one. Um, it's quite good. I really liked it, and I think the first season is on Netflix, but not the second. Um, and I actually kind of like the second better than the first almost. But, yes, that was the first place I think I'd seen Elizabeth McGovern. Um, and I really enjoyed it a lot. But, yes, yeah, so Richard E. Grant in Gosford, in Gosford Park plays um, plays the footman, kind of, a, kind of a sneaky, nasty, his eyes are everywhere footman. Just, just Richard E. Grant can play those characters really well. Perfectly for him. Yes, yes. And he is very tall. That's why I was thinking, well, tall, hot. Footman, he's tall footman. Anyway, uh, so now let's get to speaking of slimy, sneaky um, people. Um, We come to Mrs. O'Brien. Oh, yes. She, yeah. (laughs) She's such a, she's a great actress. Shaban, and I can't remember her last name. Yes, I have it. Finneran. Shaban, I'm sorry, what's her last name? Finneran. Yes, yes. Um, she's a fabulous actress. Uh, if you look at her picture when she's not playing Mrs. O'Brien, you almost can't recognize her. 
um, she's she's quite attractive and young. (laughs) She looks completely different when you see her in her day clothes. Completely different. Um, And um, she, boy, talk about a vindictive, nasty character. In some ways, I, I understand her less than I understand Thomas just because I don't know why that's the way she leads to the world, even though I'm sure there's lots of good reasons why she could, but I don't know what they are. Yeah, she's so belligerent. I wish they just, well, they are. It's like, well, I wish they would get rid of her. Oh, well, they are. But she actually, I I actually felt her was, you know, in in that final episode when they're in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually liked um, her counterpart, her Scottish counterpart, far less. And that's going some. I actually felt oh, yeah. some some uh, sympathy for Mrs. O'Brien next to uh, that woman. I want to talk um, a little. And then, of course, there's Mrs. Patmore, who's wonderful and was on Once Upon a Time last week. So I called her Mrs. Patmore in my review. <laughs> but the but the lovely Leslie Nichol, who is, uh, she's so good. She, she's so, she plays almost the same character in Once Upon a Time. Yeah, I was thinking um, it would be of the different one, but I just, you know, she plays that character so well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, so I want to talk about that finale a little bit. They, going to Scotland, was very, it was very interesting to see Robert compare himself to another um, aristocrat whose estate is crumbling. I think he got to see you there, but for Matthew and, in fact, even Branson, go I. Yeah, because Branson was, the, was I guess, um, Robert credits him with having sold him on Matthew's ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, be, which, which actually makes sense because Branson is, he's a journalist. He knows how to articulate things in a and way perhaps. <laughs> and he's a grandson of a farmer. So. Yes, and the grandson of a farmer who maybe didn't have so much practical farming to do, but um, but I just loved the setting of the finale. It was just in the Highlands, and it was just, I thought it was just so uh, beautifully done in that castle. Oh, my goodness. That estate was just beautiful. The, the bagpipes every morning and night, mm-hmm. probably do without. Um, <laughs> although I do, li- I do like bagpipe music. and um a way to get up in the morning. Yeah, it's kind of a tough way to get up in the morning. Um, but I, I really love that setting and, and would love, in fact, um, my, both my, my both novels, in fact, I, I, I think both novels have at least some scenes set in the Highlands. I've never been to Scotland. It is very high on my list. Um, it's beautiful. Have you been there? I have, yeah, and everything. I just—it's one of the countries when you go, you think this is just how I imagined it. You know, Edinburgh is just as beautiful as it should be, with a little bit of just a bit of a different atmosphere than London. And the Highlands are misty and soft and rainy and green and so pretty. I would just love to walk the hills in the Highlands. It just seems like you know you could just walk up those grassy hills. You know, not—it just looks beautiful. I. uh I got my my dose of Highlands watching three seasons of Hamish Macbeth. Which Sorry, is, have you ever seen Hamish Macbeth? 
No, I haven't. BBC series from the mid nineties. Okay. Starring 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 Robert Carlyle. Um, oh. <laughs> I will look it up. You should look it up. Um, it's not on Netflix, unfortunately. Um, but it is. It's set in this little town called Lochdu, and uh, spelt not anything close to how it's pronounced. Um, but it is. It's great. I mean, it, it's just the setting is as much a, a character of the show as any of the characters are. It's just great, great television. So I kind of got a soft spot for the Highlands from watching three series of that that show. Um, but definitely want to travel there. I love ca- I love the idea of castles and hills and mists and cliffs and so I really like the setting of the finale. But I really did like the contrast um, that that episode set between the two families. I thought that was really um, the real um, the real purpose of that episode is to see a the difference between the marital situation in that family versus Robert and Cora, as well as um, the the financial situations and how they were handling it and and one family falling apart and the other family quite unified. And I thought that was a really, really nice way to end Series 3. Of course, the stunner was Matthew's death. I mean, that was the stunner. Um, I did not see that coming. I didn't know when I was watching it, and I I watched it spoiler-free, um, that he was going to, although as they're talking about fate and all of this other stuff and you see Matthew driving very fast down the road in his roadster, I was like, okay, he's a goner. <laughs> yeah. So also was, the fact that really his arc was completely taken care of. And if they yeah. want to open up other people's arcs that are connected to him, he really has to not be there. So, right. you know, he was, he was there to solve the entail situation and he did and he was there to bring the estate into the new age and he did and he was there to get married and to have definitely the big romantic couple and he did and then to get the new heir so the entail situation doesn't happen again and he did right and everything kind of everything that he was driving really was resolved and having said that I still really really miss Matthew yeah <laughs> I, I really liked his I liked his arc all the way from season one. I thought it was um, a really nice arc. He's a terrific actor. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully he'll be in some, you know, some new things um, as time goes on. Uh, the other thing that about that season, um, that season finale that I thought was kind of interesting was the, um, and I understand from a narrative point of view why they did it, but it was interesting to see that Branson did not get invited right. to Scotland. And they didn't make a big point of it, you know, just that he was kind of like the outsider and he kind of took it philosophically. But that was quite a slap. And I think when they gave him that sort of estate manager position, that really makes him kind of an in-between person. You know, and Violet was so happy because then now she can call him Branson again. Yes, I know. I noticed that. So he's kind of this in-betweeny, so he's, he's now got a place in the family and he's got an integral thing to do. 
but none of them have to be called an estate manager. Like he's, right. he's kind of in between again. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, indeed. He's in between in a way Matthew didn't have to be. Right, even though Matthew was middle class, but he wasn't a working class guy. No, he's in the peerage. Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, we're almost out of time. Oh, my wow. God. This was fun. This was fun. Sounds and heavy. A lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about, much more than I thought there was. I mean, there's so many relationships and characters and episodes, and even though there are only, what, nine episodes in a given series, it's still, uh, there's there's always a lot to talk about. So I wanted to do this, and I thought, okay, since um, since Jane is not coming on my show till tomorrow, I thought this was kind of a nice opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to get together and, and talk about Downton a little bit. Um, once, you know, once once upon a time has kind of taken over the show um, and it's become kind of expected that we talk about once on Monday nights. And, and I tend to draw my biggest audiences when I talk about once upon a time, but it, it is uh, always fun to talk about something else. And uh, Downton seemed like a really good subject. So well, I wanted, I'm, really I'm really glad you asked me. Yeah, me too. Me too. I hate talking to myself. You know, I realized that after about, three shows, how little I liked talking to myself. I figured people would call in, but people are listening online, which is great, but they're not calling in. So I thought I've got to uh I've got to get some friends to come on the show with me. And it's been great having you and I hope you'll come back again. I will. I want to talk about um the next time you're on the show, talk about your uh article that you did. Um about Castile a couple weeks okay. ago. And uh, have a lot of opinions. Yeah. Well it was it was the top line article of the day on Blog Critics, as I recall. So front page. And uh it's gotten gotten a lot of play. Um so yes, I definitely want to talk about that. So next time you are on the show with me, we can do that. Sure. That would be wonderful. Great. And a reminder for everybody, tomorrow night I am going to be having Jane Espenson on the show, so please mark your dial, mark the time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Central Time. Tomorrow night we'll talk about Once Upon a Time, last night's episode, The Miller's Daughter, and uh, with Jane Espenson, who, of course, is famous for Buffy and Battlestar Galactica Torchwood and Game of Thrones, although I dare say I don't think she's written any of Downton Abbey. <laughs> so pretty much everything else. Uh, so until tomorrow night, um, check us out at Blog Critics. Jerry, where can they find you? They find you at Blog Critics, and is there anywhere else they can find you on Internet? Um, I'm on Twitter at, at GMKit, so G-M-K-I-T. Okay, so follow Jerry at GMKit. Or find her writer page at blogcritics.org where you can find me as well. And I want to thank you all for listening tonight. It's been a lot of fun. Jerry, thank you very much. And we'll You're talk welcome. soon. We'll talk soon. And I want to say good night for Let's Talk TV Live. I'm your host, Barbara Barnett. Tune in tomorrow night for Jane Espenson. Thank you. Good night, everybody.